Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you again, and we are returning to the Gospel of John. I'll be in chapter 7 from verse 25 to the end of the chapter. And these are the words of God. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from, and I have, come, I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Messiah. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? The officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, with the word open before us, we pray that we would walk with Jesus, hear his words, and heed them. As is obvious in this chapter, that is impossible unless your Holy Spirit opens eyes and hearts, works those words into our hearts and minds. So we ask you to do so now. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. Well, we're in the middle and towards the end of chapter 7, chapters 7, 8, and 9 are really surrounding the Feast of Tabernacles, this uh, feast that takes place six months after Passover. Um, so Passover had taken place in chapter 6, and then six months later, we now find ourselves with these activities of Jesus um, back in Jerusalem. He, you might recall he did not want to go to Jerusalem um, uh, at, at, earlier on because he knew that he, his life was in uh, that they were, at, they were seeking to, to take him, they were seeking to arrest him, and his life was in jeopardy. Um, or so it seemed, although he goes up then in, in the feast, remember the, the uh, brothers invite him to go, 
He says, I'm not, I'm not going to go. It's not my time yet. And then he goes up later on. The feast is uh, seven days, really eight-day feast. And he goes up into the middle of the feast. And we pick up now um, in, in this, middle, uh, this middle of the week while he is speaking and teaching in, in the temple. And so in this, we find ourselves at, the, at this tail end from the beginning or from the middle to the end of that week of this eight-day feast of tabernacles in Jerusalem. This feast, remember, is, uh, uh, is probably the most popular of all of the feasts. It's the, it's, it goes for eight days. It's after the main harvest has taken place, and there's is the great opportunity for celebration. And so people come from, all the Jews come from all over the, the lands to, to spend these, this week living in tents, living in, in booths, having great parties and celebrations. There's, there are ceremonies each day, but there's also lots of teaching that is going on. Uh, a lot of the great teachers would come into, uh, into Jerusalem. All of the Pharisees would be there. There'd be all kinds of teaching and, and honoring of the Lord and his word during this time. And there'd be great parties going on as well. Um, imagine, um, kind of like our family camp, something going on for an entire week of great teaching and great celebration and great food and great fellowship, being with one another during that time. That's what's going on. D.A. Carson writes about this uh, Feast of Tabernacles. Listen to it and see if if this helps kind of paint a picture for us. On the seven days of the feast, he writes, a golden flagon was filled with water from the pool of Siloam. That's the means, uh, that pool means scent and was carried in a procession led by the high priest back to the temple. As the procession approached the water gate on the south side of the inner court, three blasts from the shofar, this trumpet connected with joyful occasions, is sounded. While the pilgrims watched, the priests processed around the altar with the flagon, the temple choir singing the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 113 through 118. When the choir reached Psalm 118, every male pilgrim shook a a, a willow with myrtle twigs tied with palm in his right hand, while with his left hand he raised a piece of citrus fruit, a sign of the ingathered harvest, and all cried, give thanks to the Lord, three times. The water was offered to the God at the time of morning sacrifice, along with the daily drink offering of wine. So water and wine spill out upon this offering. The wine and the water are poured into the respective silver bowls and then poured out before the Lord. Moreover, these ceremonies of the Feast of Tabernacles were related in Jewish thought both to the Lord's provision of water in the desert and to the Lord's pouring out of the Spirit in the last days. Pouring at the Feast of Tabernacles refers symbolically to the Messianic age in which a stream from the sacred rock would flow over the whole earth. So there's all kinds of imagery going on during the Feast of Tabernacles. It's not just remembering what took place in the wilderness and celebration of that, but what God was going to bring forth. God was going to bring forth living waters. He was going to bring forth out of this, the temple of Ezekiel, waters that would flow and bring life to all of the world. And this expectation of hope that a Messiah would come to do just that is on the minds and in the celebrations um, of the people during this week. Jesus had openly taught in the temple, verse 14 we see, but all of the diverse contingents of people are still struggling with who he is and with what to do with him. As we went through that passage, you should have noticed that the people were speaking to one another and they're not agreeing. Um, the, The Pharisees have sent officers to go and take Jesus they don't. They listen to him. They can't believe the things he's saying with, with such authority, and they go back. We have the, we have the, the, the Jews. When, when whenever, most of the time when John is using the term Jews, he's referring to the official elite 
um, police force, the, the, the Sadducees, the teachers, and, the, and those who protected and judged people over and according to the law, they are not, in, well, they're, they're fearful of, of Christ and of, of the people that are gathering and more and more um, are, are following him, listening to him, talking about him. In the previous passage, we saw that, um, that, that, that you, weren't, you weren't allowed to talk about Jesus. No social media about Jesus at all because um, the Jews feared that there was going to be an uprising that would take place because of this. So this is, the, this is what's going on in chapter 7. This is what's going on in the Feast of Tabernacles. There's all kinds of joy and celebration and expectation. There's all kinds of pushing down who Jesus is. There's a lot of conflict going on um, with, regard, with regard to what's going on in these days. So, and if you think about it, such struggles continue to this day. Now, it is true that there are deep mysteries surrounding the teachings of the prophets regarding the Messiah. All of the different prophecies regarding when the Messiah would come, what the Messianic age would, would, uh, when it would take place and what it would look like, his reign and our need for a savior, all of these are tied into prophecies of the Old Testament um, and, and can be deep and, and, and uh, take a lot of study to figure out all that, is, all that is meant there. But on the other hand, Jesus' message here is pretty simple. His, his message is pretty simple. Are you thirsty? Come and drink. And in, in, in many ways, that encapsulates the gospel. <laughs> you, you could preach the gospel just that way. Are you thirsty? Come and drink. Simple as that. Our problem is not so much the complexity of the truth, nor is it really, as we'll see in, in all of these different players in, in this chapter, the complexity of the truth to understand but instead our willful decision to remain blind in our obstinate refusal to confess Jesus as Lord. R really, in our conscience, we know that. And really, our conscience bears witness that we know God's law. We know his ways. And, and so often, it's not that we have questions that cannot be answered, but rather we have this decision that we've already made that, that we're not going to understand. We're going to refuse to understand, and, there, and, and by refusing to understand, we can keep Jesus at arm's length. And that's what's going on here in this passage. And in the midst of this, kind of dropped right into the middle of this passage, is this simple gospel declaration still. Are you thirsty? Come and drink. So, in, this, in the first part, from verses 25 through 36, Jesus, we see, um, is, is now dealing with all this conflict. He had openly taught in the temple in verses 16 through 24, and yet the authorities had not yet arrested him. Um, they had been seeking to kill him. If you look back in verse 1, it says um, that Jesus did not want to go up into Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. And then also in verse 19, um, when he's arguing with them, once he is teaching in the temple, uh, he, he argues... Um, you want to keep Moses' law, you say, and you're telling me I'm not keeping the Sabbath, you remember? But I'm telling you, you don't even, you're not keeping Moses' law. You want to kill me. You want to murder me. That's in, that's in verse 19. Well, but they didn't arrest him, and he goes on teaching, and that's what's going on in verses 25. There's this, this confusion among the people. Why are they letting him still teach? He's come out now, and he's answering questions. Why are they not arresting him and getting out of here? And then they think to themselves, well, maybe they've decided he is the Messiah. So look at verse 25 and 26 again. Now, some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed? Maybe they know, is what they mean, that this is truly the Christ, the Messiah. 
But then they're confused as well. They, they knew that Christ had come from Galilee. They knew that he had grown up in Nazareth. Um, but actually, they don't know really where he's from. They're, they think that, well, he's from Galilee. Who would ever come from Galilee? But, and they had this mixed up as well. And Jesus answers both of those questions, or um, deals with both the questions. Uh, first of all, when he says here in verse 28, he says, you both know me and you know where I am from. Um, I think he says it like that. In fact, there are a couple translations that put a question mark there. So like, you know me and you know where I'm from? It makes a little bit more sense. He says, but I have not come from, I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true whom you do not know. So he begins answering this question, you think you know where I am from? And clearly states where his origin is, where he actually is from. I am from him, and he sent me. This claim of authority from the Father then irks the religious leaders who seek to take him, while many others believed in him due to his words and miracles, verse 30 and 31. Some are, some are just, they're put off, and, and, and they want him out for declaring himself to be a Messiah. Others are believing him. They're, they're listening to him. They're considering the signs and the miracles, and they're coming to some level of faith in, in following him. Um, as we've seen before also, that faith to follow him is faith in a Messiah, but oftentimes what they have is this is some of the, they could raise up and create a, an uprising against the Roman authorities. That's, that's what they're, they're believing in him to be somebody who's going to deliver them from that oppression. Of course, Jesus has something completely uh, different in mind. And then it says in verse 30 that no one laid a hand on him. And John tells us why. Because his hour had not yet come. And, and that's where I, I, made, where I made this point of, Jesus did not want to go up into Judea because they were seeking to take him. But Jesus was never concerned that they could take him because he knew that his time had not yet come. The Pharisees and the chief priests sent their temple officers to take him. Instead, these officers and, to the, and the religious leaders, Jesus gives this terrible warning, ending with, where I am, you cannot come. This is verse 34. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. That is where he is going to end up. You're not going to be able to come. And he's, he's giving them a dire warning that they will not be with him in the resurrection. They will not be with him in, his, uh, in, in the final resurrection um, when, when he comes again. And so um, in, it, this is, and then, and then they are refusing to try to understand. It says there um, in, in verse 35, then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? So they don't even want to deal with him talking about going to heaven. Maybe he's talking about he's going to go out and, and go to the dispersion, the Greek believers, the Greek, um, the, the, the Jews who had been dispersed out into the Hellenistic world and some of the Hellenistic God-fears. Maybe, maybe that's where he's going to go. Um, an ancient proverb says, there are none so blind as those who will not see. We're not even going to deal with whether or not he, he was talking about heaven. They guess that he will leave them and go to the unclean places of the dispersion. And, and what's ironic about that is, remember, John is writing this gospel decades later. It's probably the 50s, uh, late 50s, early 60s. He's writing while he is ministering in Ephesus in, in the Greek dispersion. So, so John's writing this gospel, remembering and telling that that uh, the, the Pharisees, those who thought they knew the law, were saying, were saying of, of Jesus, well, maybe he's, 
maybe he's going to go out amongst the dirty Greeks out there, those Gentiles, those goyim. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus was doing through his church as the, as the Spirit is poured out um, at Pentecost and all nations begin to become discipled. So uh, I think John is, um, is showing this biting um, irony that the Pharisees who think that they are the holy ones are actually the ones who are condemned by the words of, of Christ. In the midst of the confusion, Jesus was in no danger for his hour had not yet come. And this shows us plainly that all our sufferings were undergone, all of the Lord's sufferings, I'm sorry, were undergone voluntarily. He, um, he went to the cross, not because he could not escape it, but of his own willingness to obey the Father. For 12 chapters in John, Jesus is going to say time and again, my hour has not yet come. In John chapter 12, he's going to turn and he's going to say, my hour has come. It, it is now time. God, and what we learn from that is, God controls, Jesus controls completely the actions and the activities that are going on around him. We've seen him multiple times just step away somehow, we're not told how, but step away and not be taken when they're coming to lay hands on him. He has complete control of that situation. And, and this, is, this is really helpful um, in understanding God's sovereignty in all of our lives. He went, to the, he, he went to the cross not because he had lost control, but because he was faithfully following what God's will was for him. They could no more arrest Christ at that time than they could stop the sun from shining. Until his moment had come, there, there is no way that they could bring Christ to the cross. Proverbs 19 says, There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. And A.W. Pink, making comments on, on this passage with regard to this sovereign control, writes these words. He says, um, he's writing, in, I, and I, when I stumbled across this, I was, uh, I was struck because of uh, the pictures that, uh, that Pink brings. L listen to them. He's writing in the, in the late 1800s. He says, the enemy may war against us, and he may be permitted to strike our bodies, but shorten our lives he cannot any more than he could Job's. A frightful epidemic of disease may visit the neighborhood in which I live, but I am immune till God suffers me to be affected. Unless it is his will for me to be sick or to die, no matter how the epidemic may rage, nor how many of those around me may fall victims to it, it cannot harm me. And then, of course, the famous words of Stonewall Jackson are, Captain, my, religion, my, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. Oh, that we would have such confidence in the Lord's doings in our lives. Um, that our brothers in the Ukraine right now, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of a war upon their land, would be able to stand with that kind of courage, knowing that even in the midst of the strife, there is nothing that can touch them unless the Lord says now. The Lord has already appointed the day. The Lord has already appointed the day of your death. The Lord has already appointed the day of the means by which he is going to bring you to that death and then in, to his, into his presence. And when, when, when we have a, a grip on that, then there really isn't anything to fear. All of a sudden, the words of Psalm 91 truly become ours. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him I will trust. And then verses 6 and 7, nor of the pestilence that walks in the darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. 
resting under the shadow of God's almighty hand. They are words for us as well. Jesus lived this way. Jesus lived this way. And the confidence that he has, that he, that he shows forth, grants him the opportunity to speak with boldness the truth. What, what will grant us boldness to speak the truth? The thing that will grant us boldness to speak the truth is going to be the same confidence in God's care and love for you now, in the midst of whatever is going on, that nothing can touch you unless God says so. That grants us the kind of confidence to boldly speak the truth no matter what. Now, I'm going to skip over verse 37 through 39 and come back to it in just a moment. And I want to look some more at the, those who are willfully, willfully, willfully ignorant and, and obstinate in their blindness. Verses 40 through 52, after Jesus' declaration and invitation that, that uh, come and drink, the, um, the arrogance and the confusion continue. First over where Jesus actually came from in verses 40 through 42. Now they're saying, hey, the, the Messiah has to come, not from Galilee, has to come from, uh, from Bethlehem, has to come from the city of David. And also there's this confusion of their inability to lay hands on him. 43 and 44, so there was a division among them and the people because of him, and some wanted to lay hands on him um, but they were, not able to, they were not able to take him. No one, no one laid hands on him. The officers returned to the chief priests without Jesus, saying only they had never heard anyone speak like him. They don't arrest him. They don't arrest him. They just go back and say, we can't believe the things that this man is teaching and the authority that he is bringing forth. And they spew at those, these Pharisees spew at those Levitical officers that they are as ignorant as the unlearned crowd, damned just like them, verse 47 and 48. So the Pharisees turn on their own police force, they turn on their own um, officers, and they say, are you also deceived? Are you guys nuts? Are you following this liar out here? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? What are you doing? Your leaders are not believing in him. Why are you turning? Why are you considering turning to him? And so the irony of John's gospel persists. Nicodemus shows up again, attempting to calm the dispute among them with words of measured caution. He says uh, in verse 51, does our, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? And so instead, instead of us planning to kill him, should we not instead give him an opportunity to come before us and actually make his case? And he is immediately shamed, shouted down, and canceled as well. Verse 52, they also uh, answered and said to him, are you also from Galilee? Search and look for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. That would be a shamed statement. Are you from the from the dirty old backwoods of Galilee as opposed to the elite metropolis, metropolis of, uh, of Jerusalem, you're like one of them, accursed, all of them, in their ignorance. In 2 Peter 3, 5, Peter speaks of some who are willfully ignorant. A really important phrase to think about. Those who are not just ignorant, but willfully ignorant. And this is an apt expression of what we're seeing here going on in this gospel. This is a spiritual disease painfully common among fallen men. They pretend to not understand so that they do not have to believe what is pressed upon them. They pretend to not understand so that they do not have to believe what is pressed upon them. They do not believe 
what they do not want to believe. Romans 1, uh, 21 says, because although they knew God, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. And Psalm 53 begins, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And why does the fool say that? Because it goes on to say they are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. To say you believe, to say you understand, condemns you in your sin. The sins that you love condemns you in in your desire to be your own God and determine for yourself what is right and what is wrong. To, To say that there is a God demands you to bow the knee to that master. We don't like that. We don't want to do that. And so what do, we, what do we say? We say, oh, this doesn't make sense. I, I, I just don't really understand the Bible. It doesn't, it's just a, just a bunch of words on a page. Ask that person, have you ever read it? Like, have you ever just read through it once? And how often might you hear, you know, actually, I, no, I, I haven't read it. I, I don't want to give myself to it. Willful ignorance against, because there is this sense. And sometimes I think um, unbelievers sense this better than we do. They, they, they sense that if, if they submit to this, if they, if they say that they do understand it, all of a sudden their lives are going to be in a, in a different place. They're going to have to submit to God. Sometimes we don't even understand that um, as well as, as they do because the threat is so real to them. They cannot believe what will cost them too much to believe. They, they cannot believe what will cost them too much to believe. They're too sophisticated. I'm too sophisticated to believe in such myths. They are among the elite, and they will lose their power or their reputation or their job if they were to come out and say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. They're self-righteous. I'm actually a pretty good person. I'm Ask any of my neighbors. Take out the trash every week. I recycle. I bought an electric car to help with the climate change problem. I'm a pretty good guy. I don't hurt anyone. I look out for others. They're self-righteous. They don't want to admit that they need a savior. They're enlightened. I have come to a much, a, a much better understanding of, of what reality is all about. I don't need the archaic religions of, um, of men from centuries ago. They cannot believe what will cost them too much to believe. And they do not believe what they do not want to believe. There really isn't a neutral place um, when you are sharing the gospel and witnessing the gospel. There really isn't, you really can't um, say, let's, let's put all presuppositions aside for a moment and let's just consider the claims of Christ and then make a decision upon them. None of us honestly go to such claims um, with, a, with a blank slate. We lay the judgment of our own desires and our desire to hide our sin and, our, and, and uh, our, the knowledge that we are under judgment to twist and color the way we look at the claims of Christ. We decide not to understand because we don't want to understand, because we don't want the consequences of such understanding. And in the midst of that conflict, in the midst of people making excuses and shaming and shouting down and arguing amongst themselves, Jesus stands up, and right in the middle of this passage, Jesus stands up and says these words. Look, at me, look with me again in verse 37. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, 
And he doesn't answer all the questions, and he doesn't, he just cries out these simple words. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You've watched the outpouring of the water day after day after day in these ceremonies. You've seen that connected to God providing in the wilderness a people and delivering them, bringing them into the promised land. You, you know that there's this messianic hope and that there's going to be this outpouring of living water in some way that is going to bring um, a healing to the land and to, to you people. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then verse 39 tells us, but this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So seven days of ceremonies, teachings, singing the Hallel Psalms and feasting culminated in the final offering of water and wine poured out on the altar before the Lord. Having camped in booths, they remembered God's faithful care of them in the wilderness, of water from the rock in their thirst, and of deliverance into recalling Isaiah's promises. Isaiah wrote in in chapter 12, with with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Uh, Chapter 44, he writes, for I will pour out water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. So Isaiah has already made the connection. The outpouring of water is the outpouring of the Spirit. This is why why the mode of baptism is pouring, or one of the modes of baptism is pouring, because this is what was pictured, promised, that the the Spirit would be poured out upon uh, upon people. It would be poured out upon uh, nations. It would be poured out and declare them clean. It would make, the the, in, in Ezekiel's temple story, when the waters flow out of the temple, it makes the unclean dead, probably referring to the Dead Sea, makes that Dead Sea living again. And the outpouring of the Spirit makes dead people alive. This outpouring of the Spirit is, is, is what was being pictured as this water from the pool of Siloam is poured out on the altar. God is blessing and bringing forth living waters to go all over. Jesus is, is saying, are you thirsty? Come and drink. Isaiah would say in Isaiah 55, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Come to the waters. Oh, it makes me thirsty. Just gonna, little sermon illustration. Are you thirsty? What happens when you're thirsty? What happens when you're really, really thirsty? It's hard to get it off your mind, isn't it? You've just got to quench that thirst. But he's not talking about just, obviously, he's just not talking about physical thirst, right? Everyone knew there was more than physical water being prayed for, more than physical thirst, longing to be quenched. Something even deeper is in our souls. A.W. Pink says these words. He says, he speaks of that intense longing for himself, which only the Spirit of God can create in the soul. We, when you're thirsty for water and you're busy and you just try to push it, push it away. Well, when you're in your rebellion against God and there's this thirst, this hunger for something more, the answer of God gets pushed away. I don't want that as the answer. But the thirst doesn't go away. If a poor sinner 
Pink writes, is convicted of his pollution and desires cleansing, if he's weighed down with the awful burden of conscious guilt and desires pardon, if he's fully aware of his weakness and impotency and longs for strength and deliverance, if he is filled with fears and distrust and craves for peace and rest, then, says Christ, let him come unto me. Coming to Jesus is a simple act of faith. Have you read C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia? If you have not, I invite you to. I, I would like to require it of you. There's, there's so much good there. And in, in the silver chair, this idea of thirst and quenching is brought out. Because faith is not just receiving. Come to me and drink. It is yielding to Jesus. And in C.S. Lewis's novel, The Silver Chair, the book's heroine, Jill, sees a lion and flees into a deep forest. She is soon worn out and becomes so thirsty that she thinks herself about to die. Just then, she hears the gurgling of a brook in the distance and staggers toward it. But as she draws near to the water, she sees the lion crouched before it. If you are thirsty, says the lion, come and drink. Jill doesn't move. Are you thirsty, the lion asked. I'm dying of thirst, says Jill. Then drink, says the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, Jill stutteringly asks. The lion answers with a low growl, and Jill realizes that he will not move away. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Lewis makes this vital point. Jesus invites you to come, but only on his terms. You must come yielding yourself to him, taking him not only as Savior, but also as Lord. Jesus does not promise not to do anything to you. Jesus is not a tame lion. And the petty priorities of our lives are not safe in his hands. Jesus intends to revolutionize our lives with the priorities of his holy kingdom, his priorities. But how loving and good he is, and he is the only source of eternal life. When finally Jill knelt down and drank from the lion's waters, she found that, quote, it was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. And so it is with Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory and the Lion of Judah. Coming to Jesus is a simple act of faith, but it is receiving and submitting. Imagine that Feast of Booth's party again. Or your favorite week-long vacation. You finish that vacation and you think you find that was life. Finally, we had life. Or you're at the Feast of Tabernacles and you were with all of your friends and relatives and people you haven't seen and you've enjoyed. It comes to an end. What is that feeling you have as, as it comes to an end? You know, you're, you're leaving life. It was the end of the feast. The water was poured out for the last time. And Jesus stands up and says, I've got something more. 
That was just a taste of what I have for you. As it comes to this end, Jesus is not chastening your pleasure. He was not saying to them, well, what are you guys doing having so much fun? He was saying, I want you to taste that because it is a taste of something that I have for you that is eternal and, 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 and will last forever. He's calling you and saying, I have so much more. I have the life-giving satisfaction, joy, relief, and pleasure. That which I give is life, real life, eternal and everlasting and abundant life. Are you thirsty? To receive this, you must come. You must come to Jesus. And how hard is that? Well, one must drop one's willful ignorance and obstinate blindness. Or as another picture that someone once met, you're going to have to, you're going to, in order to receive the diamonds that are offered to you, you're going to have to let go of that stupid gravel that you are holding in your hands. Will you? Let's close together. Gracious Father, thank you for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church at Pentecost, promised here in this passage by your Son. And thank you for the ongoing pouring out of the Spirit upon the world, bringing forth abundant life in the Son. Do so now. Root out our unwillingness to believe, to trust, and to follow our Lord and Savior. And open obstinate hearts now by your Word and Spirit. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.